A Negroni is one of the great cocktail classics. In fact, it's celebrating its 100th birthday this year. When, as legend would have it, Count Camillo Negroni asked his bartender to add a drop of gin to his Americano. Folks are changing up ingredients all the time, and the Negroni has been tinkered with by creative bartenders trying their hand at redefining the basic recipe of vermouth, Campari, and gin. Our guest today knew the native flavors he had in his backyard were crying out for attention, and he was going to be the one who answered their call. I can't say his original MO was to rework the Negroni per se, but the outcome of his pursuits have provided bartenders with a new spirit to play with. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Eddie Brooks' family had macadamia nuts on their mind when purchasing an old dairy farm in Byron Bay, an eight-hour drive north of Sydney. They discovered that they had landed in the region's largest subtropical rainforest, home to hundreds of Australia's native botanicals. After a childhood spent enjoying literally the fruits of his parents' labor and a chance meeting with his idol, Jim McEwen, of Brooklattie fame, Eddie established Cape Byron Distillery and the awards keep pouring in, especially for that one ingredient that gives his take on the Negroni a particularly Australian character. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your story and where you grew up? Yeah, so... um. Our story sort of starts in different places. I'll start uh, on our farm. So 30 years ago, my parents, Pam and Martin Brook, uh, they're a bit crazy, but they're, they're crazy in a good way. Um, they purchased a complete rundown dairy farm in Byron Bay. Now, Byron Bay is on the east coast of Australia. Absolutely beautiful place. You know, a lot of people have heard about it or traveled there. Stunning beaches, pretty much all the stereotypical things about Australia, surf breaks, um, but they ended up purchasing this 95-acre, completely desolate, rundown landscape. Um, okay. now, I have to just butt in there. Yeah. Now, why? Exactly. Why? Well, What were it, they doing before? Well, I'll tell you the story. The okay. story right. probably I shouldn't tell, but it's a good one. It's the <laughs> real right. story. Um, so mum and dad grew up in, uh, oh, they, sorry, we were living in Melbourne at the time. I wasn't even a thought at this stage. Now, mum was a dentist and dad was a film producer. Dad actually comes from Torquay uh, down here uh, in Devon. And they had this idea. They always wanted to bring up their family around the country and around the sea. You know, the idea of this iconic sea change. That's what they wanted to do. So they were with their family friends. Uh, and, you know, you've got a friend that's always you two get together and you just lead each other astray. So it was a dinner party that got led astray, let's say that, and... After about, I'd say, the fifth or sixth bottle of wine, they decided to put a map of Australia up on the board. They blindfolded mum and they put a pin in the map of Australia. Now, So they were already in Australia. They, they were, were in Australia. This conversation. Okay, so you Absolutely. moved from Torquay to Australia. They, okay. So we grew up there in Melbourne at the time. They put the map in the pin okay. in the map of Australia. Now, the story goes they hit the map the first time. Now, we're talking five or six bottles of wine in where good ideas happen. Alice Springs. Alice Springs. Oh, no, ah, it. it wasn't oh, quite. No. They landed in a little place called Evans Head. Okay. So now that's on the east coast, about half right. an hour south. And... After the hangovers were, wore off, the very next weekend, they packed their cars, drove there, 
And they ended up trying to find a place and it didn't happen. But two weeks later, sight unseen, a real estate agent botched up an auction and they ended up buying this 95 acres completely sight unseen of this rundown dairy farm. And that was the start of their sea change. So there's a lot of stories of serendipity. Oh, this, this idea is going to come in a few times. So they moved and packed up and went to Byron Bay. Now, where this sort of, um, you know, where I suppose mum and dad's real passion comes from is when they started caring for the land and they started to find out what used to be there. And our region was part of the largest subtropical rainforest in Australia. It's known as the Big Scrub. Now, um, uh, have you, you know, the redwood forests in America? Of course. Yeah. yeah you know, these giant trees, you know, 20 people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 20 people arm in arm. Now we had a similar tree. It was called the red cedar. And this area, 75,000 hectares, about a hundred years ago, just got wiped out, completely demolished. So, so much so only 1% remains. Um, and I say the parents, they got the rainforest bug pretty early on. So um, our life has been spent regenerating and bringing this land back to life. So they actually, 30 years ago, they went to the bank after they'd already bought the land and they asked for a loan to plant 35,000 rainforest trees. Now, imagine going to your bank manager at the time. He'd be just thinking you're crazy. Right. Um, but that's what we did. So that was my upbringing, rebuilding the land. So now our land is a thriving rainforest. Um, you know, with that, you know, it's fivefold increase in the amount of trees. Um, you know, the birds have returned. We've got a kidna and wallaby and koala, uh, you know, platypus in the dam now. And, uh, and we also plant macadamias. That's what we farm as well. So, what, Was there ever, they bought a dairy farm. Did they think they were going to do dairy or not, have cows? It or was, it was just that it was a farm? It was going to be macadamias was always okay. their first intention. So where we're from is called Northern Rivers in Australia. It's um, 200 million years ago, actually, sorry, 20 million years ago, there was a mountain called Mount Warning and it exploded and lava spilled out all over mm. our region. Um, so that means we've got this really rich, rich volcanic red soil. So perfect fertile soils, um, very subtropical climate too. And it's a perfect region for growing macadamias. So we're the actual second largest macadamia growing region now uh-huh. in Australia. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of where um, our family side of it comes from. But now you're thinking, right, from rainforest to, you know, we've got bottles of gin in front of us. How? Where's the connection? Um and this comes from quite an interesting story of serendipity and um, where I got to meet my idol. So um, to put it lightly, Jim McEwen for me was one of the biggest influences of my life. Uh, um, imagine you're a boxer and you got to meet Muhammad Ali. Uh, now, I was working managing the brands Brook Laddie and the Botanist in Australia at the time. And uh, I was an ambassador for that, those brands prior and how I learned to learn about those was watching YouTube videos of the great Jim McEwen, you know, talking about this spirit. And when he talked about the spirit, it wasn't just, you know, the product, the juice in the bottle. It was more than that. You know, this was the lifeblood for his community. You know, this is, he talks about like the blood of Scotland. You know, this stuff, you know, helped that community survive. You know, farmers started growing barley again. You know, the schools started to flourish. People got jobs on Isla, this tiny little community. And growing up as a farmer, I sort of connected really strongly with that. So um, anyway, um, I got to put a tour on for Jim McEwen in Australia. And I was like, 
you know, jumping out of my boots. And I remember I was so nervous. I was shaking the first time I got to meet him. And I, you know, orchestrated this 22-show sellout tour for Jim around the country. And, you know, we're talking 100 people plus, um, you know, paying, packing into auditoriums just to listen to the great man talk and tell stories. You know, people connected with what he talks about because it's real, comes from the heart. Um, you know, and he's a rock star of the whiskey industry as well. So during this tour, uh, we formed quite a friendship and he's very much a family-driven kind of guy. Um, and he asked me about my family and I sort of explained what I was telling you before, that my family, we're crazy, but in a good way. You know, our life has been regenerating rainforests, but my passion growing up on the land has been around native flavours um, and he was interested in that. And I said, Jim, you wouldn't believe what we have growing in our rainforest and in our region. You know, you take aniseed, we have aniseed myrtle, you know, citrus, we've got finger lime, cinnamon, we've got cinnamon myrtle, you know, we've got strawberry gum, we've got dorigo pepper leaf, we've got all this stuff, which was, you know, this is my backyard and mm. I grew up with. And as the tour went on and, you know, something incredible was happening and he actually turned to me on one leg of the flight um, when I was telling him about these native flavours and he said, Eddie, we were meant to meet and we're going to start this distillery. And I still bear scars from pinching myself slightly, <laughs> but um, that's kind of the story about how we came to be. Now, my family, when we get a good idea, we hit the ground running. So, Oh, wait, wait, hold on. Hold absolutely. On. Before we get there, um, back on up. Yeah, um, because it is about you as well. Absolutely. Now you were born into this "quote unquote" crazy family, as yep. you say, that is into regenerating forests. Um, when you were growing up, did you feel that you wanted to continue this? You know, the development of this. Were you going to take this in? You know, and continue what your parents had started, or did you want to go off and do something else? Yeah, it was a bit of a strange one. Like for me. My upbringing was, you know, we used to work the farm, uh, but also we started a food business. So um, it was called Brook Farm. So every day I'd come home from school, mum uh, would be baking different macadamia products, um, you know, different mueslis and granolas. And it was that smell of roasted macadamia I'd walk into the house. So we, the way we started our business, mum was still working as a dentist and dad was doing odds and ends. And we'd bake product during the week. I'd come home from school, we'd bag it, I'd put labels on, you know, it was a whole family in together. Uh, and then come the weekends, we'd go to the markets, pack our pack the car full and we'd go sell our product and talk about what we do. Um, and it, that was that was just my upbringing, mm. you know. There was um, a lot of people say, geez, that must be crazy. But, you know, I used to sleep next to muesli boxes, you know. we'd uh, That was just it our family. Worse. It, it could be worse. It could be worse, yeah. yeah. Um, and how about the love of spirits? Well, the love of spirits, very early on, um, my family, um, you know, it's always been appreciation of product. And mum in particular has been a Scotch whiskey fiend. I think I had, oh, you know, there, there, was a, there was a thimble full of Scotch probably on my, on my dummy when I was a little <laughs> one. Um, but I grew up in that food industry, in that okay. culinary world. And that quickly evolved into when I started uni, I found that creative output. I was working as, you know, in kitchens um, behind bars. So I started my career as a cocktail bartender and I, you know, went out to work with the best people in, uh, in our region. This is in Brisbane in Australia, you know, the likes of, you know, Marco Nunez from Canvas. And I learned so much from these people, you know, I was a sponge. Um, and I just was fascinated by the industry, but more so I fell in love with 
Um, I remember the first time I got to see a brand ambassador talk about a product. I was like, wow, how cool is that? You know, and I connected with them telling and sharing stories. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of where, you know, I was about four or five years in, uh, in the cocktail industry, worked in managing bars and doing cocktail list development. And I just love that output. So that led me into a career into as an ambassador for products, you know, in Brisbane, such as Buffalo Trace, you know, beautiful, mm. beautiful bourbon and, um, you know, Brocklady and we did Heyman's Gin and these great, great products and these great stories. And, you know, these, they come from real places, from real people making the product. So um, when did you think it was time to start telling your story? Um, well, it was, was it the meeting gym? It was pretty much meeting gym for me in my cutting through life. Um, growing up with a family business, we've got a great um, first family business, 100% family owned. We employ now 70 people in our local community and area. And I always knew one day that I wanted to be a part of that business. But when I did, I wanted to bring something to the business rather than having something to learn from. So I wanted to cut my own path and then, you know, bring something because we're going to be, a, you know, our end goal is to be generational, this family mm -hmm. business. So it's about the long term goal. Um, so Just like the rainforest. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was, it was that story. And it's quite funny. You don't know when things happen, but it was that culmination of, you know, maybe my upbringing, that food industry, growing up and working the farm, understanding native products and wanting to always, we had a crazy idea prior to this about, you know, why don't we do a distillery? Um, but it's one of those ideas, you know, you just put on the shelf, but it's there. It's always in the back of your head. Uh, what, were you thinking making things out of macadamia nuts or whiskey, gin? Well, what, yeah, we were originally... When it was an idea. Yeah, originally we were thinking whiskey, but for me it was... I'm very passionate about our native flavours coming from our land, so I wanted it to be around that. Mm -hmm. Now, to, you know, have an idea around product is one, but then to be able to balance it out into a spirit is a whole different kettle mm -hmm. of fish. And that's where Jim comes in, you know, the the man and the way his palate works. And, you know, he's 50, 53, 54 years in the spirit industry, you know, 15 years started yeah. as a cooper kicking barrels. And what that man doesn't know about whiskey, it's not worth knowing, you know, or about spirit production because he knows it all. So um, that's when we evolved and started the process about building the recipe. You know, I've brought all my knowledge of flavors and I was lucky enough to be mentored and trained by Jim mm -hmm. in the art of distillation. And, and that's really where, you know, the product came to life and, um, and which is a, a pretty, pretty exciting part to it. Brookie's gin is the culmination and really two worlds coming together. It's our family's work and life we've done with regenerating and you know, my upbringing around native food and flavors and really just having a passion for it and showcasing that, combining with probably the, the most knowledgeable man in, in the spirit industry today. And what he fell in love with was, you know, it's more than us just creating a product. You know, Jim and I and what we believe in is, you know, creating product but also doing it in a way that has a positive impact on our environment and also our community. You know, that's what it's about and that spirit, you know, what you're tasting there, you know, that showcases uh, what we've done on our farm. You know, this is this started 30 years ago. You know, this bottle right here, you know, this isn't an overnight thing. Um, okay, uh, well, back to you and you, you and meeting Jim. Yes. So did he actually come and visit your farm? He did. So 
this idea came about and during that, you know, that, that trip, um, I remember I hopped off that plane and I called mum and dad, um, Pam and Martin, and I said, guys, you have to come to Tasmania, which is the last leg of the trip. Um, uh, you know, something incredible is going on. And, you know, they had this belief. Uh, and, you know, it's just in a way our crazy family goes. So they did. They came to Tasmania. We had our first official, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, company meeting. And we sat down in a cafe in Hobart. And this idea started coming to life. It grew foundations. Um, now, so Jim went back to Isla and we, you know, got back to the farm. I put in my resignation with South Trade, didn't tell a soul, you know, this was something, this is the biggest secret in my life I mm. think I've ever kept. I couldn't tell anyone yet. And we started building the distillery. And, you know, after we built the distillery or, you know, two, a month before we finished it, Jim flew over. So our still, which was is a 2,000 litre, beautiful copper pot still handmade for us in Tasmania by a mad German called uh, called Peter Bailey. And, you know, it's that fine art of, you know, form and function. It's just beautiful, you know, so attentive, the details. And as that still was getting, um, uh, getting put to, you know, getting built in the distillery and commissioned, we started work on the recipe. So, and was this the recipe for your first gin? This is the recipe for our Brookies, the our Byron Dry Gin. Okay. Our signature gin. You know, this was going to be the pillars of what we were starting with and, and what we stand for. But always with a view to the future of making whiskey? Uh, no. Oh. Funnily enough, a lot of people do. You know, a lot of well, people... Well, you're talking about gin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. Um, now, when we did it, you know, for us, what we do on the land and what we do with native flavours you know, that story was going to get told through our gin. Um, and, you know, to be honest, Jim has done his work like beyond anything in the world of uh, with whiskey. And our intention was always, always just to do gin. Okay. Um, so we actually, our copper pot still called George, we had a custom made purely for making, you know, what was going to be our gin. We installed a, in the line arm of the still, uh, a botanical basket, um, you know, that was where we were going to fill all of our native ginger into the still. But apart from that, it's a perfect Scottish pot still shape. So it wasn't until um, January this year that we only even started whiskey. Uh, and, you know, we've been going three years now. So the first, especially for the first year and a half, for us, it was about all about gin. Um, and there was always that idea, like I've have. Uh, I've always been intrigued by the world of whiskey and being a lover of it and I've, you know, done a lot of ambassador work with it. And there is something quite magical around that spirit, you know. As Jim talks about it, you know, when a spirit is produced, a child is born mm. and that child goes to its mother, a cask, you know, and depending on, you know, how much life that mother has to give that child and the environment that it evolves in and grows up in is going to impact and give character to that spirit. Um, and there's something quite magical about it. You can't get swept, you can't help but get swept up in that. But our intent was always to do gin. But as we ticked along, we realized, uh, you know, we're not distilling every single day with this gin, with this still, we've got large shoes to fill. So we kind of, you know, mulled over this idea and I chat with Jim fairly often and he's like, well, let's put this still back to work. Let's uh -huh. do it. So, well, back to, back to gin. Back to back gin. Back to the gin first. Absolutely. Then. Um, so, you wanted to create the flavors I, in, of your home farm yep. in your gin. Absolutely. 
Um, obviously, you have to use juniper. Yep. to be gen. What else were you thinking of throwing in? So, you know, juniper and coriander are the backbone, really, of gin. Um, we don't grow juniper in Australia. Where you know, cold climate is generally the temperature it grows in. Now, cold climate in Australia don't really fit too well. We've got definite areas, but we don't have uh, a farming background. Our nation in growing mm. juniper, so we bring it over from. Um, you know, places like Macedonia and Hungary and some from Italy. Um, but for us, when you take a step back and you look at the flavour profile of what we have growing in our region, it's called Northern Rivers, our region in, in the Byron Bay region, and it's home to the most amount of subtropical fruits, native fruits and flavours grown in our country. So I'm going to paint a little picture for you in a flavor wheel. You know, in, in terms of gin, you normally obviously you've got juniper, coriander, but then you've got citrus is a part of it. Then almost like tea-like or bitter notes coming into it. Uh, and then you've got a sense of floral coming into it as well. And you also need some dryness in there as well. Now, if you take a step back, take away those traditional flavors and you looked at the wheel of Australian native flavors, we've got that. So citrus... We've got 80 different varieties growing in our region of finger limes. You know, we've got cross, we've got desert limes. We've got this cross-pollinated citrus called blood lime. They took a finger lime and a mandarin, a variety, um, got those together. We've got a, you know, a little berry coming off the tree called white aspen berry. You know, this tastes like lemon lime sorbet. That's just citrus alone. Mm. Then you go into tea-like characteristics. You know, mint, we've got native river mint. You know, we've got cinnamon myrtle and aniseed myrtle and, you know, dorigo pepper leaf. It's like Earl Grey meets a Szechuan pepper. Um, you know, floral, we've got a banksia flower that smells like honeysuckle. You know, we've got fresh lily pilly leaves and, you know, that bitterness and dryness. You know, we've got native thyme and the flavor's all there, you know. So for what we wanted to do, our, our idea was bring together, you know, traditional and native flavors and lay them in together and balance them into a, a beautiful gin. That's a lot of choice there that you're describing. It, it must sure be really is. tough to choose. Uh, How it, long did the whole process take? Uh, it, it is, well, it is and it isn't. So for there's, there's way more. You know, for instance, uh, I'll give you one example, like lemon myrtle. Lemon myrtle is probably Australia's most well-known or one of most well-known bush foods. Um, very high in citronella, but it is such a powerful flavor. Mm. And the way I sort of talk about it is... Um, you know, if you had brought a room together of 15 of your dear friends, everyone has a friend like Lemon Myrtle. Now, <laughs> Lemon Myrtle stands out. You know, you're not going to get away from it, but okay. it's beautiful. Like, you know, there's a lot of great Australian gins that balance it in so well. That just wasn't going to be our personality. So um, for the amount we use, there's an even bigger list we didn't even use. Uh -huh. The world of Australian native flavors is almost beyond comprehension with what we've got here. But it was all about coming back to balance. And I talk about those different flavor regions, citrus, tea-like, floral, um, you know, they, you know, and the anise, and they all need to play a part. So this is where we, Jim came to Australia, and it was a pretty um, packed-in time period, but we had Jim, Jim was here for five weeks, and we set about creating our recipes. Now, prior to Jim arriving, I'd already distilled and worked on a lot of those native flavors and understood how they distilled mm. through, very different from just eating them straight. So we set to work. So the first step was to bring Jim into our world. The man knows native, you know, traditional botanicals like you wouldn't believe. You know, he created the botanist Jim. Right. You know, he obviously knows his way around. Um, 
and he knows how to balance flavors. So we brought him into our world of native flavors. So the only way to do that is immerse him. So we went into the rainforest, into the bush. Um, actually, I might tell you a funny story if you don't mind. No, um, so we're here for yeah, exactly. Stories. Yeah, so um, so Jim's known as the rainforest. Oh, sorry, Jim's known as the cask whisperer. Um, you know, mm. he does that because in the halls of Brooklady or Bowmore, where he was master distiller, you know, he believes that spirit is more than just product in a cask. You know, there's something spiritual going on, uh, and you'd be out talking to casks. You know, hey, how you doing? How was winter? How's your staves? You know, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking mm. all right so far. And um, on the flip side of that, Dad, we, he, Jim actually named him uh, the Rainforest Whisperer. <laughs> and he did that because he's crazy, similar to Jim in a good way. He truly believes there is much more than those trees growing. There's something, you know, there's a connection. You can't help but when you go into a great rainforest, you feel something. Now, he named all those 35,000 trees. Exactly. They all have a name. Yeah, and, right? he's got, and he's got his favourite ones. He'll oh, go in there, it. you know, and he, and he always yeah. go, and there's this beautiful tree that's, um, uh, it's, a, it's a large uh, blue fig that's getting wrapped by a strangler fig, and yeah. it is just incredible. But he has all these favourite trees. Right. So anyway, that's Dad. He's out chatting with the trees, the birds. So, Dave, so you have two whisperers. Two whisperers, life. right? You can imagine. It's like the start of a bad joke. <laughs> so we had day one was bringing Jim into our world of native flavors. And we started set off into the rainforest. So you got the rainforest whisperer, dad, I'm behind him. And then the cast whisperer, and we're heading into the rainforest. (laughs) And we get to this one patch in the rainforest. It's fairly early on. This is in spring. Perfect, beautiful time on the orchard. Um, And everything's coming to life. So in this one patch, you know, imagine about sort of three meters wide, dense rainforest. um, And we're picking native raspberries straight from the bush. We've got white aspen coming straight from the trees. You know, we've got, um, you know, cinnamon myrtle flowering and this smell of honeysuckle cinnamon coming off and aniseed myrtle and ryberries coming off. Now, one thing we didn't quite realise, and this is in Jim's mind, is he thought you could eat absolutely everything. Yeah, you kind of know where this is going. So here's Jim, got a mouthful of this, and this is stuff we're giving him. And, you know, kind of a rule of thumb, if you don't know what you're eating, if it looks like a ripe berry, probably steer away from it. Anyway, Especially in Australia. Everything can kill you. Exactly. (laughs) So after this little area, Dad goes, right, we're off again. And we didn't think too too much about it. So rainforest whisperer, me, cast whisperer, and we've headed in. Dad's five minutes in, we've been walking and Dad's telling stories about the trees, his birds, and the bird song's just incredible and Dad's getting carried away. Anyway, uh, after a little while, we've turned around and we've both stopped and, like, you know, our jaws have dropped. Look, he's munching. He has got berries and leaves oh, no. and everything coming out of his mouth and we were thinking, oh, we've my God. Yeah. <laughs> we've killed him. We've killed him. see the frontline newspaper on Isla or, you know, you know, Red Spirit Industry, you know, you know, Rainforest Whisperer poisons cast whisper in Byron Bay. But uh, thankfully he was all right. You know, he had a couple, he had a pretty upset tummy, but, uh, but it was quite funny. Anyway, so what I was getting at before I got carried away um, was bringing him into our world. So he had to understand native flavours. So the native raspberry, you know, um, the aniseed myrtle, the cinnamon myrtle and understanding those flavours, you know, just like he did with the botanist on Isla. Um and then once he had that understanding, we really set to work on the recipe. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's all about balance. You know, a lot of these flavors are quite powerful, but, you know, if you balance them in right, 
you know, they'll make those flavors completely pop and burst open. Um, and one flavor in particular we use, which sounds a bit strange, but is macadamia, ground macadamia. Mm. So when you distill and distill all those flavors through, a lot of oil comes through, you know, you're mm. after that oil. Um, and macadamia comes through and gives this butteriness and oiliness and a, and a beautiful sort of mouthfeel to our gin, which is very different. Um, but, um, yeah, so we had one problem, though. Um, we knew all of our native ginger was going in the line arm. Now, a traditional pot still, 2,000 litres. We did every, all those, you know, we built that raft of botanicals, you know, your juniper, your coriander, mm. your cinnamon, our native citrus. Um, but we had all this soft native flavour. And if we put it in the belly of the still, it was just going to get beaten up and lost. Right. If we put it in the basket, we didn't have any more room up there. So mm. we couldn't do that. So he came up, or Jim came up with this idea, only Jim could, and he called it he'd Babylon Bags. And put this in your mind's eye, the hanging gardens of Babylon, you know, mists and vapours passing through these gardens, and that's what we wanted to recreate. So we welded hooks at the start of the neck of the still, uh-huh. and inside the pot still we hang and put all of those native flavours in our Babylon bags, three different bags, so they hang suspended, not in the liquid above, right. So when we distill, they infuse through vapor. Um, so you've got all the flavors in the belly of the still, Babylon bags infusing through vapor, and then the native ginger getting passed through vapor. And that's how we make our, our Brookies fire and dry gin. And how long did it take from concept to having a bottle? Uh, it was, um, well, from concept to bottle was all in all um, the recipe. Well, really, I guess recipe to Recipe, bottle. yeah, no, after I distilled, it was about mm-hmm. probably a six-month time period, mm-hmm. but it was all doing balancing those flavors. I'd send ones to Jim back and forth, but it was five weeks we had to nail this recipe out. Mm-hmm. While he was there. So we had the clock ticking. Uh-huh. Like we would, we'd go, you know, 14, 14 hours a day nonstop working on recipes, coming up with, con- you know, ideas. So... Did you have the eureka moment in that time during that time? We did, uh, we did, and it's a it's a it's a moment. Yeah, you, know, you have these moments in life you'll never forget. Now it was day, you know, it was the first time we work our recipe. Now to do it on a small still is one thing, but to take it into a larger still, you almost have this. You know, you're venturing into the unknown. You know, going where no man's gone before. You know, yeah, there's a lot of unknown without scaling a recipe, and. When that spirit ran, um, when we made that cut, it was just the family in the distillery, um, Jim and I, and, you know, there was not a dry eye. You know, there was just elation. There was, you know, this was, this was the spirit. This is our distillery. This is our family business that was born. So it's, uh, it was a pretty special and powerful moment and one that, you know, definitely I'll hold on to for the rest of my life. I'm sure. Now, you also have your slow gin we and do. your Mac. We do indeed. Um, so tell me a little bit about how those started as well. Yeah. So um, so our slow gin was our second product we brought to market. Now, you... and now I'm just going to say it's S-L-O-W. So it's not slow gin. Mm. It's something different. Exactly. Now, we realized we brought a lot of things to Australia. Education, it seems, wasn't one of them. And we're not very good at spelling. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I joke around because we do this for a reason. Um in Australia, we don't really grow slow berries. Mm. We do have very small growth in Tasmania, and they're not native. They're brought over. Very much a cold climate crop. Um, but what we do have is uh, this incredible fruit called the Davidson plum, Davidsonia mm. plum. Mm-hmm. Now, this fruit only grows in the region of 
northern rivers. This is its home. Millions of years it's lived here. And the fruit is incredible. Nothing like you've ever seen before. The tree looks like a tree out of a Dr. Seuss book. Um, you know, it grows 20 feet high. It wears a top hat of leaves and has a thin trunk. And the fruit grows straight off the inside of the trunk. No arms come off it. Um, but the fruit's incredible. So similar to the slowberry, it just lacks marzipan and bitter notes to it, which is, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I wanted to take, uh, and my concept was to do a purely native Australian take on the classic English slow gin. Um, so we do it all in the same style. So we first freeze our Davidson plums, comes purely, we get them once a year. We grow about 600 kilos a year. We're putting in a lot more trees in a, in a separate area. Uh, but we get them from small farmers and growers in our region. And then we freeze them and the skins split open. Then we steep those Davidson plums straight into our spirit, our barren dry gin uh, we were just talking about. And then it rests and ages. And it ages up to around, takes on average 10 months to produce one bottle. And what happens when that, you know, when that fruit um, you know, ages and spends time resting and evolving, you get flavours of almost like port or jammy notes and you get sort of muscatel and raisins and um, all these flavors start to come to life um, and then we balance it just with introducing we grow a lot of cane in our region so we get a very raw unrefined cane sugar and and that's it very natural product but again showcasing our rainforest and um, so it's uh it's pretty fun it's been Turning some heads just recently, you know, we've the dry gin has won a gold medal at the San Francisco three years in a row, uh, which is massive. World Spirits Comp and the SIP Awards um, awarded our Byron Slow Gin, our Brookies Slow Gin, a platinum. And it was quite funny. When we got awarded the platinum, this is about six months ago, we didn't have enough stock. So we actually, we couldn't, we could, we can't keep up with this because, you know, we don't even sell to large retailers in Australia because uh, it goes to our, you know, local retailers, bottle shops, you know, independent bars, and they love that unique. Everyone's falling in love yeah. with the flavor. So if we told people about the metal, we were thinking more people are just going to want it. And we can't do that because we're going to let everyone else down that wants it already, you know. So we held off for six months telling oh. the world about it, but... um now you shout about it. Now we shout now about we it. it. Yeah. We're only just getting enough, but not a lot. <laughs> now the Mac, the which Mac. I'm sure is really dear to your heart. Absolutely. Because talk about native flavors yeah. and macadamia, obviously. A Mac as a macadamia. That's it. Um, uh, so why did you decide to create that? So growing up, you know, I'll go back to where we started with Brook Farm. Every single day, you know, we grow, we've got just over 3,000 macadamia trees on our property. It's what we do. We farm macadamias. Um and, you know, my upbringing, every day I'd come home from school, um, you know, when I was about 10 years old, mum would have about six, six to eight different products she's been working on, roasting and macadamias. And that smell of roasted macadamias is like, you know, it's so nostalgic for me. And it's almost like the smell of baked bread. You know, you get that warming hug on the inside. You can't help but smile. Um, so I wanted to recreate and I wanted to showcase our native Australian, you know, bushnut uh, macadamia. So this is a liqueur and it's a heavily roasted macadamia and wattle seed liqueur. Um, and for me, I wanted to show depth of flavor for the macadamia. So we first take, take the nut and we are using ovens, our hand roasted ovens. So we roast them in a big trays and we roast them always till they're too bitter to taste. And it's almost, if you ever imagine 
you know, toasting pine nuts in a pan. There's that fine moment. If you don't toast them enough, they're, they're okay, but they're, they're not that flavor you're after. You get the sweet spot, but that sweet spot to burnt is very close, and that's the margin we play in. Um, but second to that, we also look at a part of the macadamia that's never been used. Uh, it's the shell, the hard shell. Oh. I so, don't even think I've ever seen a shell. No, they're like, okay, so imagine I'll, I'll paint it in your mind's eye. So the macadamia grows off a tree, and on the outer, outer of it, you've got a husk. It's kind of like almost like a coconut husk, but a little softer. And then inside that, you have a very, very hard shell, like hard as a rock. If you threw it at a window, it would break it. And uh, then inside that hard shell is the kernel or the nut, mm-hmm. the macadamia nut. And that's you know. what we usually eat. That's the one. Um, so the hard shell has a lot of flavor in it, but it's very hard to extract or people always overlook it. So I went to our processor and I asked them to do something they'd never done before, which was make it food grade. So they oh. cooked it for a long period of time, pasteurizing it, and that drew out, drew out all the moisture, removed all the bacteria, and when that shell hits spirit and macerates or steeps for about three months, you get flavors of butterscotch and toffee. Oh, boy. It is incredible. I think you're the first person probably to ever realize this. Well, yeah. You've got, you got to be a bit crazy, <laughs> yeah. I think. You, got, you know, I always, you know, you've got to, you've got to I'm, I've always grown up with always asking why or what if, you know, or why not, you know. And these, these are the questions I think you've got to ask if you're going to create something. Um, but then we use bottle seed. And wattle seed is my one of my favorite Australian bush flavors. Uh, best way to describe it. So it's a seed grows off a tree called the acacia tree. And it's very popular in Australia. It's actually on one of our notes. You'll see this beautiful, you know, vibrant, vibrant sort of yellow flower. But the seed, when you roast it, becomes bush coffee. It tastes like beautifully dark roasted coffee meets dark chocolate and almost like roasted semi-burnt popcorn. It's just incredible. And those are our flavors. And can you eat the seed by itself? You can. You do You do need to roast it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is It is best roasted, um, but the flavor is, is incredible. You know, if you dusted that over uh, espresso martini, you could even use it purely just as coffee, and it looks like coffee grounds when it's roasted. And to bring those two together... Was that completely your idea to bring the macadamia and the seed together? Yeah, um, it, it was because, you know, the macadamia is so buttery. You know, it's it's got this inherent sweetness about it uh, and especially the flavor we got from it. And we needed the, a bit of bitterness too there as well. It's just like, I suppose it goes back to almost creating a drink, you know, balancing out a drink. I needed those flavors in there. And I don't know, I've just had those flavor memories, you know, tucked away and automatically I knew it was going to be wattle seed. I knew those flavors were going to work. So it took me about 12 months to get that recipe right and balance. You know, it's about extracting flavors at different alcohol levels, but uh, it's simple. You know, you look at that color here, um, you know, um, it's this beautiful golden, um, dark, rich, almost mahogany color. Now, we don't use any coloring. We never will. We don't use any flavorings, any essences, never will. This is purely, purely coming from the macadamia and the wattle seed. And it's gorgeous. Yeah. Now back to the whiskey. Yes. So when did you start putting it in barrels? So we only started, oh, uh, what month are we now? Um, So we started in... February, the 11th of February, 2019 was the very first barrel we filled. So it hasn't come out yet. Hasn't come out yet. Not at all. So in a few years. 
in a few years, we've got two uh, slightly different rules and regulations in Australia, not too far gone. Um, barrel or whiskey to be whiskey has to be in a barrel for two years mm-hmm. in an oak cask, oak vessel. And the other one is where we get a little bit more flexibility to be a single malt whiskey, you have to create your own wash on site. Now, in Australia, that's not the case. So we get this slight flexibility into how we can approach uh, production and spirit. And it just so happens our dear, dear family, friends, and in our community um, is Australia's far and away number one premium craft independent beer called Stone and Wood. Mm-hmm. Now, these guys are incredible. Not only do they produce great beer, but at the heart and soul of what they do is all about their community and they wanted to create a community brewery. So um, we worked with them. Some dear friends, Brad, the head brewer in particular, uh, he, was, he was so excited. He was almost more excited about we were about creating this new chapter of our distillery and we set aside or, set, you know, set to work on creating our wash. So we use a beautiful Australian pale malt barley um, and then we use yeast strains. One in particular is a classic traditional one used for scotch whiskey but then we played around with the second one which uh, uh, to, to far as uh, as far as i know has never been used for the making of spirit before it's normally um, used in the beer industry for um, some more almost sort of lighter style beers um, more sort of sour style beers and what we do the ester profile we got offered is this huge pear and lychee and almost pineapple skin note purely coming off that ester profile um but the oiliness we get from that spirit is just beautiful and you know jim's not one to ever tell a tale um when that spirit ran um and we nosed it and we've you know we've been producing that spirit ever since you know he said um hand on heart that this is one of the finest spirits he's been he's ever been a part of so um so it's pretty incredible it's great Great start for us. You know, we're going into full-size American oak casts. But then again, it comes back to our environment. You know, that spirit of Brooklady, you know, and on spirit aged on Isla, you know, good spirit that's aged on Isla properly, those barrels living on Isla, they're experiencing that same. You've got wind and all that lashing against it. And when Byron, where where the rainforest meets the sea, you know, you've got this huge salinity in the air, um, you know, but we've got this coolness running in the rainforest as well. So... Our barrels are working a lot harder than, than mm. over here in the UK. Um, so we get a lot faster maturation. It's about 1.8 times as quick. So a two-and-a-half-year-old in Australia will be around a four-year-old um, there. So, um, yeah, it's early days for us. But, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting new chapter for what we're doing as a distillery. Well, you've made me thirsty. Uh, should we go try some? I think we should. Thanks so much to Eddie, who stopped by on his whistle-stop tour of Europe to share his story. If you live in the UK, you can find Brookie's Gin, Slow Gin, and Mac at the Whiskey Exchange or the Masters of Malt. All you Americans and anyone else, beg your friends from the UK and Australia to bring you a bottle. Aussies, you have it easy. It's right in your backyard. Back to the Negroni. After the success of the cocktail, the Negroni family founded a Negroni-making distillery and bottled it. The Distilleria Negroni still exists today. One of its most famous fans was Orson Welles, who claimed they were good for you. He thought the bitters helped your liver, but he also agreed that the gin is not so great for your liver, and that they balanced each other out. I'm not sure where that leaves us. 
Brookies has added just one new ingredient to the standard Negroni recipe. And you can find that in this week's Cocktail of the Week. The slow Groni has the best of both worlds, the old and the new, the traditional gin, Campari, and vermouth. But this time the gin is Brookies, and the additional ingredient is the Byron slow gin that Eddie described. All you have to do is keep the proportions exact and stir it, no shaking. So add 30 mLs of Brookies Byron Dry Gin and 15 mLs of Brookies Byron Slow Gin and 30 mLs of Campari and 15 mLs of Premium Vermouth all over ice in a mixing glass and stir it until chilled. Then strain it over an ice-filled glass. Garnish it with an orange slice or some zest. Close your eyes and dream about being on the porch of the distillery overlooking the Australian rainforest. You'll find this recipe and more Negroni recipes plus all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. I hated Negronis the first time I tasted one, even though I love Campari. But it took one visit to Bar Termini in London to teach me a thing or two. They have four different expressions of Negronis, which you can try in small Nicanora glasses, and the staff is on hand to teach you the ins and out of the Negroni. I tried all four, and I think I was converted that night. I wish I had known about Negronis when I was living in Florence in the 1980s. Cafe Giacosa, where the cocktail was invented, was my local coffee place. Just like Cova in Milan and Cafe Greco in Rome, Giacosa was a 200-year-old wonder of gold and marble, one of the most beautiful coffee houses in Italy. How it was sold off to Roberto Cavalli at the turn of this century and finally closed to make room for his boutique, I think, is an embarrassment. You can still find photos of the original Giacosa online. If you want to talk more about Giacosa, Florence, Negronis, or Cape Iron Distillery, go to flick.group slash lushlife. It's free to join and works on Android or iOS devices. Plus, you can listen to the latest episodes right there if you want to catch up. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife. And you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are here still every Tuesday. Theme music for Lush Life is always by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, the second part was mine. In the fourth company episode, we will go from down under to lower ground floor to meet the owner of one of London's temples of rum and one of the best bars in the world. Until next time, bottoms up.